0: Let's open our Bibles to that book of Ecclesiastes and read the words of the living God. Solomon wrote these about 900 B.C., 500 to 600 years in front of the perverts that assembled in Greece and gave their human philosophy to men. We defy, deny, and reject... Everything that Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and all those around them combined together came up with, as did our Lord Jesus Christ, Solomon, and Paul. Amen. When Paul was in Athens, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Right. Wandering through their devotions, he saw an altar to the unknown God. That's how superstitious they were. He stood up on Mars Hill in the Areopagus, the place where all the philosophers gathered together, And our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul, said, I perceive that in all things ye Athenians are too superstitious. God isn't worshipped the way you're worshipping Him. God that gave life to all isn't worshipped in temples made with hands. He giveth life and breath to all. He isn't made like any of the images your craftsmen have come up with. In Him we live and move and have our being, as even your own poets have said. You don't make any sense in your religion. That God that you ignorantly worship, let me tell you about Him. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world, and He's raised Him from the dead. By which all men can know that He's coming to judge the world. Amen. Amen. And He walked out of the place. Some made fun of Him. Some said, we'll hear you again on this matter. But Dionysius the Areopagite got up and said, brethren, here's my resignation. I'm following that man. Do you know that's in the Bible? And Damaris and others like them posted their resignations and followed our brother Paul out of that assembly and became Christians. We have a philosopher. God gave it to us in the man Solomon. And we want to learn his words in a few minutes. Time is racing today. We have so much to do today. It's such a good day to be in the house of God. I'll remember what time it is if you'll remember to listen carefully. Ecclesiastes. What does the word mean? In Hebrew, it's Koheleth. In Greek, it's Ecclesiastes. Preacher. Amen. Your King James Bible tells you that. Look at the title. Don't you love the King James Bible? Amen. Under the word Ecclesiastes, it says, Or, for you English lovers... The preacher. Amen. And he starts the book that way and he ends the book that way. And our preacher is Solomon by the inspiration of the living God. Right. These, this first verse is important and it's not something to be raced over. It's not to be raced over if it was there by itself. But it's not there by itself because it's repeated in verse 12. Why is it repeated in verse 12? Because Solomon and God want you to know these things. It's Solomon writing these words. He is the son of David, and he was king in Jerusalem when he went about this pursuit of philosophy. Because for any skeptics that don't think that there is in the Bible a valuable lesson on how to live life, he wants you to remember that he was the wisest man that ever lived. His father prepared him better than any man could be prepared for this pursuit, because he was the son of David, and he had all the advantages of being king of the greatest city on earth where God was worshipped. And so he says it twice. Let me read the first section of this chapter. The first chapter, and I believe that parsing and dividing something into parts makes it easier to digest. And what we do with chapter 1 is we divide it after verse 3 because that's the introduction. Then we divide it after verse 11 because that's the first lesson. And then we divide it at the chapter break because that's the second lesson. And I think that will help you. The first three verses I read to you. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Including verse 1 and verse 12. Every word of God. The words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit? hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun. Preaching is not difficult if we read the Bible and let it define it for us. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 8 that true Bible preaching is reading the word of God distinctly and giving the sense and causing the people to understand the reading. Verse 1, the words of the preacher. Solomon was a preacher. He defines the word preacher in chapter 12 as being a master of assemblies. Someone who leads an assembly in order for it to be profitable in the worship of God and profitable for their understanding. If you look very quickly at chapter 12, and we don't have too much time to look too carefully at some of these places, but if you'll look there, listen to Solomon define his role as a preacher in Israel. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. The one shepherd is God. He gives us every word that we have, but he gives those words to masters of assemblies who use them as goads to poke God's people and prod them to be the godly, holy, virtuous, successful, righteous people they ought to be. And Solomon did that. He sought out and and took heed to set in order good words and many Proverbs. The Bible tells us he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. We have only a collection of a few of them in the book of Proverbs. The Bible tells us that he wrote 1,005 songs. We have one in the Bible. Unless a couple of the Psalms may have been his as well and were considered songs. But there's 1,004 missing. And when you read the one, it's pretty good. Song of Solomon. And when you read the Proverbs, they're pretty good. Back to chapter 1. This is what he means by being the words of the preacher acceptable words of truth given by the shepherd, one shepherd, God himself, who takes care of his people and fed them, not only with manna from heaven, but with the words of the living God and with Jesus, his own son. Amen. The words of the preacher, the son of David. Having David as his father put him in good stead. We already read this morning Psalm 39, verses 4 through 7. Psalm 62, verses 8 and 9. Where David himself said, Surely, the pursuit of riches in this world is vanity. Surely, they are disquieted in vain. Surely, man in his best state is altogether vanity. Surely, men of low degree are a lie and men of high, no, men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie. Surely, put together in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. David's already taught us that, and he taught those things to Solomon. David himself was a preacher, a teacher, and a prophet. Solomon had witnessed all the natural advantages of, of his father. His father was a great looker. His father was very wise. His name was set by in Israel. He had a great reputation. David had great accomplishments. David conquered the land of the, that we call the Middle East from the Euphrates River, which runs through the middle of Iraq, all the way to the Nile River that's the border of Egypt, From the Jordan River and Arabia, the edges of Arabia, to the Mediterranean Sea, it was one huge empire that David conquered, built and established forts. Solomon witnessed all of that. Solomon witnessed his father in trouble with women. Solomon witnessed his father in trouble with riches through his sons and their abuse of them in not being the father that he should have been. Solomon saw. Solomon was prepared to be a great philosopher. And he was king in Jerusalem. God made him king. A king can explore these things a whole lot better than you and I can. A king has authority so that he can ask for anything to be done. And it is done. We can't. We've got to beg and plead and hope that we can get it done. But not Solomon. Solomon wasn't like our president. You know, our president has Congress. All 535 of them sitting there seeing what they can do to hinder him from doing what he wants to do. Outside of that... Capitol building, we have a whole media that want to question him about every single thing he tries to do. Solomon didn't have to answer to anyone. He just did it. He was he was rich. God made him one of the richest king in the history of Israel. Silver was like stones, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 3 and 4. He had all the wisdom that it took. And I want to tell you this about Solomon's wisdom. Solomon's wisdom was primarily great natural wisdom. When you read about Solomon's wisdom, it says he spoke about trees. He spoke about creeping things. It doesn't say he spoke about heaven or the Son of God. Please understand that about Solomon's wisdom. Now, God was with Solomon, and and Solomon had some godly wisdom. But the great outpouring of wisdom to Solomon was how to deal with natural things. His wisdom was shown and having two prostitutes before him in 1 Kings chapter 3, he didn't teach them about the eternal verities of heaven. He didn't teach them about a Messiah that they needed for their souls. He determined which one of them had truly lost, or was going to lose a son, and whose son it really belonged to. And all Israel feared the king when they saw his wisdom, but it was in a natural way. But as king... Solomon had all the natural wisdom, he had all the riches, he had all the authority, he had all the advantages to try everything that could be tried. And he tells us this here, he tells us this in verse 12, and he's going to tell us again throughout the book, so that you will not forget he had advantages you don't have. So if you ever think that you know better than Solomon, he's trying to tell you he had advantages you'll never have, you better listen to him. Every word of God is true. The first verse is important. He wants to remind you of that. Now look at how he opens. He doesn't open grace, mercy, and peace to you through Jesus Christ our Lord and from God our Father. He opens with vanity of vanities. He opens with his conclusion. He's going to say the very same thing in chapter 12 and verse 8. Because between these two verses, he is going to break us down before he puts us back together. He is going to tear apart our lives before he gives us a life. He is going to make us hopeless before he gives us hope. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. All is vanity. What an opening. No salutation. No explanation. Just a blast with his conclusion that life is vain. What is vanity? It is a descriptive term meaning empty. All is empty. It is a descriptive term meaning futile. All is futile. It is a descriptive term meaning profitless. All is profitless. It is a descriptive term meaning unsatisfying. All is unsatisfying. It's a descriptive term meaning hopeless. All is hopeless. What a way to start a book. You know what? He's right. Without God. He gives us the the best part of the book in the last two verses. He gives us a few hints about it throughout the book. But for the most part, he's got to take us down before he puts us back together. Because we have within us, and we have outside us in the world, and we have in the spiritual realm three enemies that try to make us think different than this book. That there is satisfaction, and there is fulfillment, and there is value in this life. In comparison... To heaven because they don't even think about heaven but we want to think about heaven and then that makes this life valuable the value of this life is because we put God first and his son Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives then this life takes on value then we have peace then we have hope then we can enjoy things in their proper place because we're not resting our existence upon them but we're using them as gifts of God until we receive the greater gift eternal life, and eternal inheritance to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, delivered from this body of corruption that we live in into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Amen. For those of you that read Romans 8:15 through 25 last night, you should have been jumping out of your chair and shouting. Romans 8:15 through 25 is the cure for the book of Ecclesiastes. The earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. Do you have an earnest expectation for something better than the book of Ecclesiastes? Something better than its description of the hopelessness of life? Jesus is coming for us. He's going to rip this place apart. It's all groaning and travailing and pain until now. He's going to deliver it from the bondage of sin into the glorious liberty. You've never had liberty like you're going to have it. This country can sing about liberty all they want. They don't know about liberty compared to the liberty that's coming. Liberty from these bodies that decay. Liberty from this depraved old man that sins. Liberty is coming. Vanity of vanities. When it says that, it's like king of kings. It's a statement of a superlative nature. Vanity of vanities, meaning if you take all the empty things in the world, life is the biggest one of them all. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We need to take everything in our lives and put it in this verse. Lest we be distracted and discouraged about the things of heaven. Let me repeat. You have within you a love for the things of this life. The world knows only the things of this life and they try to get you to love those things. And the devil himself seduces you with those things. He came to Eve and he said, look at that tree. Doesn't the fruit look good to taste and to eat? The lust. Of the flesh doesn't it look beautiful the lust of the eyes doesn't it look to you like a tree that could make one wise to be like God the pride of life he used every tool that he's got the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and he still uses that we are not ignorant of his devices vanity of vanities what are your vanities what is your vanity your children is your life and your hope and your fulfillment, you're all based on your children? What a vain thing. It's no better than someone that works out in a gym. God didn't need you to get your children in the world. Don't you know that there's three billion other mothers? Don't you know that God could have had children grow on trees, and when they reached nine months, they just fell off and walked away? It's all vanity. If you put your heart and your life into your children, they're going to disappoint you. Because everyone in life will disappoint you compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Lord, my life, my hope, my all. And if you get distracted from that, what is your vanity? Is it building and keeping your body? (laughs) Some of us have shared two pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, when I was a 15-year-old boy, had a pretty studly-looking body. Arnold Schwarzenegger, or others like him, give them the 40 years that have passed since 1970 to the year 2008. They look a little different. Everything's gone south. What was once called a chest is now a breast. If he runs without a training bra, he gets stretch marks. This is to remind you, this is to remind you about what's happening to us. You want to keep your life, you wrinkled, pruning gray thing. You look like a prune. You look like a raisin compared to what you once did. I could get a whole lot more graphic on being very disciplined. I have some other things I'd like to say. It's to re- don't make it your body. Throughout this series of messages. This does not mean that children aren't important, that a little bodily exercise may have a little bit of profit. It doesn't mean that. It means to set your affection on those things because they are vain. They are not going to give you any lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, or help. What is your vanity? Is it your job? We all have to go to work, but is your heart set up on your job? Is that what's important to you? Is that what you think gives your life meaning? Is you go to work and do a great job? Is it your hobby? Is it your money? Is it your marriage? Is it your house? Is it your yard? Is it the education that you're getting? Is it the education you want your children to get? Those things are all vain. You won't take them with you. Someone else is going to enjoy them. They do not give you satisfaction because if you bring me over, I will find the weeds in your yard. If you show me your yard and I can't find a weed, I'm going to tell you about the man that's going to use it when you're gone and you have to sell it for less than you wanted. Oh, It's all vain. Right. Vanity of vanities, sayeth the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Amen. If you don't make the Lord Jesus Christ your sun and your moon, you're going to live a vain life and be disappointed. Right. He should be the beginning of your day and He should be your night. He should be your all in all. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? This is his introduction. He tells us who he is in verse 1. He tells us the summary of what he learned in verse 2. And he asks you a question in verse 3. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What is there profitable about all the effort you put forth every day? Yes, we have to work. Yes, we have to eat. Yes, we need a roof over our head and clothes on our back. But really, what lasting fulfillment or satisfaction comes from all the efforts that we pour out to get an education, get a job, then retire and die. It's the truth. You press your children every day. You've got to get an education. you got to... Why, Mommy? Why? Because you've got to get a good job. Why, Mommy? Because you've got to retire someday. Why, Mommy? Because you've got to die. What profit? Unless we get our lift, eyes lifted up, we are on a treadmill going nowhere. Ever seen the little mouse going as fast as he can, the little treadmill on the little circle? We are on a treadmill. And you know what the world tells us? And I've, I've used this before. The world pops onto the TV. The world pops onto a billboard. The world pops up in a magazine. The world pops up with your colleagues at work. Your world pops up with your own family or your neighbors. And it says, push the speed button up a little faster because then you'll get satisfied and happy. And so there you are. You're working as hard as you can. You reach up, push the up arrow for a little faster, and the sweat's flying off your head, and you're trembling. You don't know if you can keep up the rat race. And they're telling you, if you'll just go one notch higher, you can be happy. And you push one notch higher and you can't keep up. And then it spits you off into the grave and into hell. Amen. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? I have a few minutes with you. To blast the Word of God as Solomon blasted it for us to keep our priorities in the right place, and that is on the God of heaven and eternal life, the resurrection of the dead, and the glorification of our bodies and souls. That's what's important. We're not going to find it here in this world. Did you hear the words of Jacob this morning when he spoke to Pharaoh? The years of your servant Pharaoh have been pitiful. They've been few and full of trouble. They've been few and evil. And he'd live to be 130. Guess what that says about your life? If his were few and evil, yours are fewer and evil. Did you hear Barzillai? I'm 80 years old, David. You don't want me sit living in Jerusalem in your palace. Nice retirement idea. But you don't want me there. I can't tell the difference between good things and bad things. They give me spoiled milk. They give me fresh milk. I drink it. It tastes the same. A good steak and a bad steak. I get horse meat one day. I get filet mignon from a cow the next day. I can't tell the difference. They give me good wine, bad wine. I think Boone's Farm is wine. I don't know anything. I can't taste it anymore. You've got all those singers in your palace. I hear that singing. It just makes my skin crawl. It's a bunch of noise. Let me hear a dog howling. Did you hear him? Solomon's going to tell us all about it in chapter 12. Because it all decays. My dad keeps telling me, and he's not here. You know I would do it if he was here. He keeps saying, would you hand me the spices, son? I'm really getting to like spicy food. You know why he's getting to like spicy food? Because if he didn't put some spices on him, he wouldn't know he was eating. And I love my father. My brother knows and my wife knows that my father has never enjoyed spicy foods until the last ten years. Now he likes spicy foods because at least he tastes something. Did you hear those expressions? Did you hear Moses say through David in Psalm 90 that if a man had strength so that he could live 80 years, those years are full of labor and sorrow. The best of his life is going to be labor and sorrow. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Our labor is profitless for a whole lot of reasons. We can't take anything with us, so you're working for someone else we got to leave it all behind, and it's usually going to be a fool. Nothing satisfies in any lasting way. Everything's a whole lot of pain and trouble getting it. Moths and rust corrupt it while it's here, and thieves break through to steal it. We can't relax or sleep because we're worrying about it, and no one's going to remember a thing about it once we leave. Oh, if they would just build a memorial to me. I've asked my wife before. When I die... Will you please build a little memorial in our bedroom and light a candle for me? Or she just looks at me, for, for what? You know, you know, she's, anyway. We have our little joke about that. You know what? When we leave a company, I remember leaving Michigan National Bank in Detroit, they're going to be brought to their knees. Right. Yeah. They're going to be brought to their knees. They'll be begging for me to come back. Oh, no, they weren't. Bye-bye. They didn't even say that. Good riddance. It's just the way life is. And you know, if it wasn't for God keeping track of us, remembering us, you're going to be put in the ground and a little stone's going to be put over you and the only person that's ever going to see it's the one cut in the grass. What profit? Do you know what all that makes us do? Yep, the guy with the weed eater. Do you know what that makes us do? we got to look to heaven. We want to sing about the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to help each other think of Christ. We want to speak of Christ. We want to praise His name. We want to thank Him that He saved us from this rat race. This treadmill that goes nowhere. This profitless existence. Help me go faster. Verses 4 through 11. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done, is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That lesson, lesson number one, nothing changes, there's nothing new. We are all in a circle and a cycle that leads nowhere. One generation pops into the world. Oh, look at this life that's full of hope. They, have you ever heard that? He's got so much hope Because his mommy and daddy are well enough off that they're going to get him a college education. There's so much hope for little Johnny. One generation comes and one goes. The day my son Philip was born. I remember being in an important meeting. First National Bank of Chicago was visiting. Michigan National Bank of Detroit It was an important meeting. Phone rings. Sherry says, it's time. When Sherry says, it's time, it's time. I better hurry. They made me leave, and I went and got my car and began driving home to get my wife. A beautiful day, 15-mile road in Troy, Michigan, traveling east. The white clouds were passing through a blue sky. All the traffic was buzzing around me back and forth. And I thought about something else she told me in that short phone call. My grandmother died today. I said, Lord, one life has gone out of existence, another one's coming into existence, there isn't a single person around me that cares about either of them, they're just blowing back and forth, wanting to go somewhere to make something in a vain show, the clouds, they aren't stopping to take recognition of either the one going or the one coming. One generation, this verse came to me with power. One generation cometh, and another leaveth, but the earth abideth forever. You are in a stupid circle of vanity. You are in a cycle of vanity. The word used in the context is a circuit of vanity. Human existence is no different from the wind, the sun, and the rent water cycle. All three of those cycles just continually, continually do the same thing over and over again, and they never get anywhere. The ocean never gets full to where it says we can stop raining. The sun never warms us enough to where we can be content because it has to set and then come up again. The wind whirls about. Sometimes it brings us a breeze and sometimes a hurricane. But it always goes back to where it came from because it blows from that place again. We're in a vicious cycle leading nowhere. There is nothing new. There is no improvement either in the course of human events or in the natural events like sun, wind, and rain. This is the lesson. There is nothing new and nothing changes. There is no improvement. Somebody will say, but I've got an MP3 player and Solomon didn't have one of those. Solomon had it live, idiot. Didn't you hear Barzillai? I can't hear your men singers and your women singers. You know, you think you're neat because you've got this stupid little box you carry around that I can't figure out. Yeah, you're neat on that count. But that little thing that you carry around called an MP3 player, he had it live whenever he wanted it. Do you think they said our concert isn't until Saturday if he wanted it Friday night? There's nothing new under the sun. You jump in your car and you think you've got good transportation. I'll tell you something that looks better than your Mustang. And those are real horses pulling a real chariot. A chariot of gold. He had it. That is not the point of this lesson that there's nothing new. Yes, of course, we make a little better mouse trap from one generation to the next. But Solomon isn't wasting his time on mouse traps. Solomon is trying to find out what profit is there under the sun for all the labor that we go through. And that has never changed. There is nothing that satisfies the human soul. It is all a vain show and a whole lot of vexation of spirit to keep chasing things that don't satisfy. That's the lesson. You can see that verse 4 is very much like 5, 6, and 7. One generation cometh and another leaveth, but the earth abideth forever. This solid earth that's been here for 6,000 years... Generations have come and go, and the vast majority of them are totally unknown to mankind. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said, can anyone say, see, here is something new? It's been of old time. You just don't know who had that, or who tried that. We are not talking about refrigeration. You think an air conditioner is comfortable? How about the ones that Solomon had fanning fanning him whenever he wanted it? We could go on and on. Solomon had confectionery. Solomon had every form of entertainment. Solomon had more comforts. He had more building projects and things that he could have and look at and use than you can imagine. You should read about them. That's why I gave you some chapters last Lord's Day from First Kings. There's nothing new under the sun. That which hath been, it's what's going to be. That's what, what it's going to be. is going to be old and forgotten by that which comes after it. Verses 9, 10, and 11 are all saying basically the same thing. There's no change. There's no improvement. There's no fulfillment. There's nothing new that can satisfy man. He keeps seeking for it. He keeps searching for it, but he can't find it. Verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. How do I put into words how, uh, how difficult, troubling, worrisome life is in all the labor that it involves? We work so hard, we worry so much, and it doesn't satisfy us or get us to any place of improvement or satisfaction. I could stop with each one of you and talk about the things that are important in your life and how you do worry from time to time and how hard you work and how hard you have worked to try to get somewhere, but there is nothing that satisfies the soul. So that verse goes on to say, the reason is the ear is not satisfied with hearing and the eye isn't satisfied with seeing. I have watched painfully as my children tried to learn that lesson. I don't know if they know it yet or not. They get a new car or a good used car. When they're shopping for it and they walk around it for the first time, it's perfect. All of you adults know this already. It's perfect. As soon as they get it home, once they've paid for it, they spot a few things that are wrong with it. You can't see that before you buy it. Because anticipation is always better than reality. Perception is better than reality. So you live in this perceptive world of a make-believe fantasy that you've got this great car. You get it home and you find things wrong with it. You take it out and drive it for a week. Things start to break on it. You're disappointed with certain features of it. You pull up into work and someone else has a newer model of the same car and yours all of a sudden looks ugly. All these things happen. And there you are working so hard to get something that's ugly in one week because somebody else bought a better one than you and parked it beside your spot in the parking lot. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. I can't tell it to you how fully true it is. You buy a house. You buy a new house. You buy a used house. Before you sign for it, it's beautiful. As soon as you sign for it, you can see more things in that house than you could have ever seen before. Does anyone know that lesson? That as soon as you pay for something, all of a sudden you can see more flaws. You know that one you're going to marry? Perfect. That's why they say love is blind. They say love is blind. Not love is 40-40. Or love is 60-60, but love is blind. Then you get married and your eyes are opened. You're no longer blind. You say, what in the world have I done? And if we were really wise, we'd say, what in the world have they done? Man cannot utter it. You have one good meal. You have one good meal and you think, this is such a wonderful night tonight. Do you know where you want to go next time? See if you can find somewhere better. And there isn't a better because as soon as you get the better, you're going to want something more. The Bible says, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. And Eric Carnell, I commend you for having that in the wall of your office when you owned your first business. I'll always remember that. Just remember the lesson of it. I believe you do. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Ecclesiastes 5.10 tells us that. That's enough for verses 4 through 11. There's more that could be said, but I, you know what Solomon said? Man cannot utter it. Man cannot utter it. How do you describe how foolish our pursuit of things is and our constant disappointment? There is no generation and there is no man in any generation that has ever achieved satisfaction and fulfillment for the purpose of life. Do you know why he hasn't told you about it? Because he's in the grave. Do you know why he can't show you about it? Because he's in the grave. How big of a bed would make Bill Gates happy? Bill Gates is worth $50 billion. Would a bed two feet larger than a king-sized bed make him sleep better at night? So there's no new thing? How about a bed that's four feet bigger? Would a larger toilet make it better? Or would he fall in? What's a dining room table for? It's nothing but to hold food, with, food within arm's reach for you to get into your mouth. What if it's made of gold or it's cheap? It still holds food there for your hand to get a hold of and put it in your mouth. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. He wants you to know that again. He tried everything. You think about whatever you, you like your lawn. You work hard. You know, we have a yard of dreams. We all like going to look at that yard of dreams. Solomon had yards and flowers and trees, and he could walk around and talk about them almost as much as Red Baker. I speak as a fool for a minute. Have you read First Kings chapter 4 where it says he could talk about trees? Yes. Kings would come to sit at his feet, and he talked about trees. He wants you to Remember. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. When I made these observations and this analysis and came to this conclusion about life, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. This also is the word of the Lord. In verse 13, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This tells us the purpose, just as the question in verse 3 Solomon is going to find out what we're here on earth for, what we should be living for, and how we should live. Then he says this interesting statement about that pursuit of wisdom. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. And this is why it's being preached to you, because it's in God's word to exercise you and me. The exercise and the travail is not the labor in the first half of the verse. The exercise and the travail is trying to figure out why am I laboring? What is the profit for all my labor? He's going to repeat this throughout the book. The real travail is, what is this all about? What am I here for? That is the travail and the exercise. Oh, please, listen to these words. What is the exercise? Because he hath subjected the creature in vanity that he might give him some hope in another world. We set our hope in this world when we ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has subjected us to vanity. This is in Romans chapter 8, that he might also subject us to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the exercise. That's why this book is given to the saints of God. This book isn't for the world. This wasn't published in Philistia. This wasn't published in Egypt. This was kept in Jerusalem and read by the priests and the Levites and taught to the people of Israel. That is the exercise. That's why we're going through this book, that we can be exercised to know that there is not satisfaction and fulfillment to be found here. It's in the hereafter. It's not in our life. It's in his life. It's not in an inheritance that we can give or receive now. It's an inheritance we're going to receive later. It's the win-win-win with the big win at the end. As the brother told us a few minutes ago, Solomon said in verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Everything that could be done, he did it. You say, well, what about marriage? Did you know about marriage and how fulfilling that was? He had a thousand wives. And the 700 that were first class wives and the 300 that were concubines, the 700 wives were all princesses. Not bad. Do you know what he said about women in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? I find more bitter than death. Ooh, that is not politically correct. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Now, so that all the sisters in this church understand, he wasn't talking about anyone in this room. He was talking about the women he had married. Do you know who he started off with? Pharaoh's daughter. He did not know how to marry right. Money. You know, one of, one of you, I can't remember who it is right now, and I'm sorry for the fail memory. Frail memory. See, I can't remember frail. Has been reminding me about the shields of gold that you read about. Shields of gold. Pounds of gold in each shield. He had it all. He said... I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Do you know under the sun comes 29 times in this book of only 12 chapters? Because that's what he's talking about. He keeps bringing up the words under the sun because he's trying to tell you the point I'm trying to make is that a horizontal life view is wrong, futile, vain, and worthless. It's a vertical life view that makes sense, and he won't tell us that until a couple hints and then at the end. It's the horizontal life view under the sun. It's life on planet earth that is vain. I have seen all the works and behold all his vanity and vexation of spirit. Read about some of his works. Read about his summer home. Read about the temple of God that he built. Read about the houses and the temples that he built for the false gods. Read about his aqueducts. Read about the stuff that he built. He saw it all. He had pleasures. He had entertainment. Behold all his vanity and vexation of spirit. If God's made something crooked, I can't make it straight, and if God's made something wanting, I can't number it, no other man can either. The barren womb cannot be satisfied unless God gives it seed and conception. I commune with mine own heart. Verse 16. I talked with myself saying, "Look at this. I'm come to great estate. I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me. My heart's had great experience of wisdom. I've delighted and enjoyed it and considered the wisdom and knowledge I have. I've given myself to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That did not mean he became like an insane man. That means that he also considered the arguments that insane men like Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle had considered. He considered true wisdom that God had given him, and he considered the natural wisdom of men. And do you know what that's called in the opinion of God? Madness and folly. The Bible says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That's the madness and folly. He didn't crawl around on the ground slobbering all over himself like an idiot. He just considered all the idiots' thinkings about life and their thoughts and opinions. He weighed them against the wisdom that God had given him. And as he's going to tell you in chapter 2, wisdom excels folly like light excels darkness. And yet, look at his conclusion. This also is vexation of spirit. Doing all that comparison and realizing how dumb the world is, how stupid the world is, is in verse 17, but then in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Without a God. This is a natural view of natural wisdom. God poured wisdom into Solomon so that any dilemma, he knew the answer. Any predicament he could solve. He weighed that against all the opinions and ideas of men, found them severely wanting, that it was totally vexing to think about how idiotic the average man thinks about life. And don't we do that all the time? It frustrates us. It irritates us. And then he said, for in much wisdom is much grief. Lots of wisdom from God is grief. Greater knowledge of things reveals more clearly your inability to change things. Knowing how things could work or should work causes frustration when you see people not doing it that way. Knowing consequences of actions means that you have a greater apprehension of the coming evil and results. Knowing the superiority of wisdom over folly leads you to mistrust other men who have never shown a wise thought out of their mouths. Increasing in true knowledge results in you knowing that you know less than you should know. Knowing the right and profitable behavior for an action leads you to greater responsibility. An increase in knowledge causes envy and hatred by those who haven't obtained any. An increase in knowledge requires an equal increase in memory or you're going to forget what you know. (laughs) Brethren, it's all vain is what I'm trying to tell you. So that Solomon would say, for in much wisdom is much grief. But do you know that it is a win-win situation when we get to the end of this book... That if we have God and we are blessed with the wisdom of his word, including spiritual and practical wisdom, we have the best of all worlds. But without God, wisdom in itself is just painful. It causes sorrow because you see all the trouble, you know all the solutions, and yet no one follows. Psalm 119 is my closing verse. Please turn to it. Psalm 119. All that is said in chapter 1 should be weighed in light of 1213. A little four-year-old came to me this morning at 835 and wanted to give me her new memory verse. She said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You'll want to hear it too, brother. It has been said already that we have a win-win situation in life. Paul told Timothy, charge the rich that they trust not in their riches, but in the living God who richly giveth us all things to enjoy. Is that sweet? We have God and heaven coming, and we can enjoy the things here as long as we keep them in second place. Praise the God of heaven. He has been so good to his children. This bondage of corruption isn't too bad while we're here, as long as we keep God our Father and Jesus Christ first, because he's the deliverance from it. Here's the verse I want to close with. Psalm 119, verse 37. Psalm 119, verse 37. This should be our prayer at the end of Ecclesiastes 1. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Lord, turn my, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, it is not filled. Lord, turn my eyes away from beholding the vanity of this life, and quicken thou me in thy way. Make me alive toward your things. Turn me away from these things, turn me toward your things. This should be our prayer. The most delightful and satisfying relationship is with God. The most delightful and satisfying thing is his word. Make them the chief pursuit of your life this next week. Your relationship with God and your use of his word. May Jesus Christ be praised.